Wake up, America. It's Morning Air with John Morales. Si, senor. Sarah Tafoya. Hey, it's my mom. Mama. And Glenn Leverins. This is Morning Air on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. It's Monday, February 19th, 2024. Good morning and welcome to a brand new hour of Morning Air here on this President's Day. I'm John Morales, along with Glenn Leverance and studio producer Gabby Birkin for Sarah Tafoya. Thanks so much for joining us across America and beyond, wherever you may be uh, listening to us uh, this morning here on Relevant Radio and the new Relevant Radio app. Now, most Americans called uh, today President's Day, but according to federal law, the third Monday in February is officially George Washington's birthday. Because it's a federal holiday, a federal services such as uh, the U.S. post offices are closed today on President's Day. Uh, Dr. Dan Burns, Associate Professor of Politics at the University of Dallas, uh, joined us on Morning Air to discuss uh, President's Day. Under federal law, it is still technically called Washington's birthday. A lot of people do call it President's Day. That's um, partly, you know, their reports vary, but it seems like it was partly when they moved it to Monday back about 50 years ago. A lot of people were also celebrating Lincoln's birthday, which was just eight days ago, I believe. And they, uh, now there's going to be a floating Monday holiday in between the two. They sort of merged them and said, we're going to celebrate both Washington and Lincoln. Other people take the opportunity to sort of celebrate presidents in general, although, you know, in our history, some presidents, I'd say, have been more to celebrate than others. So I really like the idea of sticking to Washington and Lincoln, but people can interpret it how they like. So it was originally about the founder, of, you know, the father of our country. Um, but we're going to incorporate at least Lincoln into there, the sort of uh, arguably either the first or second greatest uh, of our presidents in history. And that's basically where it comes from is to celebrate George Washington. And, and coming up a, a little bit later this hour, uh, I will share the rest of my conversation with Professor Dan Burns for a really a Catholic perspective on President's Day. Uh, you can always send us an email directly. It's morningair at relevantradio.com. I want to bring in Glenn once again. Hey, Glenn, uh, what are some of the headlines uh, here this hour on this President's Day? Well, John, just thinking about President's Day for a moment, back in dinosaur times when I was in grade school, before it became that Monday holiday, it seemed for a while they alternated. One year we'd get Washington's birthday off, the next year we'd get Lincoln's birthday off. So this kind of simplified things as they moved a lot of those floating holidays to Monday. But nonetheless, we're hard at work here at Relevant Radio for you. And some very sad news out of Minnesota in terms of some first responders killed responding to a domestic abuse situation in a Minneapolis suburb of Burnsville early on Sunday morning. Two officers were killed, another injured, recovering in the hospital. A uh, EMT, a paramedic, was also killed attending to one of the injured officers. And the, uh, the shooter themselves took their own life as well. Seven kids were inside the house at the time. They all got out unharmed. A very sad day uh, in Minnesota, and especially for the uh, the first responder community, John. Yeah, a really, really uh, sad situation. In fact, uh, the governor of Minnesota, Tim Waltz, uh, posted uh, this on X, formerly uh, Twitter. He uh, said, we must never take for granted the bravery and sacrifices our police officers and first responders make every day. My heart is with the families today and the entire state of Minnesota stands with Burnsville. So. My father-in-law is a uh, former uh, sheriff's deputy, and uh, so that always hits home if there's a police officer lost in the line of duty. How is is the Minneapolis uh, area, you know, handling uh, this awful tragedy? 
Well, the way this handled, it was able to, to see some of that coverage last night. Uh, kind of a, a prayer vigil was held uh, around 6 in the evening, 6.30 last night uh, at the police department in Burnsville. And uh, you know, a lot of folks from the community just coming out, uh, placing flowers there and uh, sharing their sorrow together, uh, supporting some family members who were there and uh, a lot of prayers and uh, a lot of prayers broadcast on national TV, too. That was good to see. Well, we unite ourselves uh, to all of those uh, people uh, praying uh, for those two uh, police officers and the paramedic uh, that died and all the families uh, that are uh, affected from this uh, terrible, uh, senseless uh, tragedy. Uh, On a much uh, lighter note, uh, the NBA All-Star Game was last night, and uh, Damian Lillard and Tyrese Halliburton combined for 71 points to, to lead uh, the Eastern Conference to a 211-186 win over the Western Conference uh, in Indianapolis. Lillard was named the MVP of the game after scoring 39 points and knocking down 11 shots from beyond the arc, including this half-court shot, as heard on TNT. Glenn, uh, you talk about a high-scoring game. There's never been one like this uh, in the All-Star game. 211 to 186. Neither of us have uh, announced a basketball score where a team had uh, 200 points, uh, let alone both over 180. Hey, my Minnesota guy, Carl Anthony Towns, I don't know if it would be embarrassing to be the only one taking all the shots, but uh, the West was letting him go to town. He had 50 in a, in a losing effort. Ironically, he had over 60 in a, a regular season losing effort earlier in the year, but uh, his team doing well. But uh, congrats to the East. And um, that was almost as much of an exhibition as uh, Saturday night's three-point contest. Oh, my goodness. Yes, uh, Saturday night. I, I actually uh, tuned in. I didn't see uh, the whole uh, All-Star weekend festivities, but I did get get to catch uh, the uh, three-point uh, shooting contest uh, between uh, Steph Curry and Sabrina Ionesco. Uh, she is uh, outstanding, and she gave uh, Steph Curry a, a run for his money. Uh, this is the first time that, they, that they've ever had this event. It was the first time uh, between an NBA player and a WNBA player going at it uh, in All-Star Weekend. And uh, would you believe that Curry narrowly uh, defeated um, Ionescu uh, Saturday night. Uh, these two went at it. Uh, he beat her uh, 29 to 26. She was absolutely on fire. Came out uh, out of the blocks, nine out of her first 10 shots from three point land. Here's uh, what it sounded like on TNT 24, 26. Oh, she's right there with you. She had 26. Oh, she would have made the final. Yes, she would have made the NBA final. Ten seconds. He got it. He got it. He got it. There he got it. Look at him. Oh, he got it. Man, that the greatest shooter this game has ever seen. I, I, I think she should have shot from the women's line. She should have shot from the women's line. That would have been a fair contest. I still lose for Sabrina. All right, that was Kenny Smith of the TNT gang, and they they were rooting for Sabrina. And just a a footnote, Glenn, she was using a a WNBA ball, which is slightly smaller uh, than the NBA ball. But uh, nevertheless, she was shooting uh, from the normal NBA three-point line. So it, it was really interesting to see these two go at it. 
You suppose Steph was nervous? He didn't want to lose to a girl? He was, for sure. He actually said it afterwards. He, he was nervous, and she gave him a She came out on fire. I mean, uh, this gal, Sabrina, can really, really shoot. She's got beautiful form, and uh, she was very gracious. Obviously, Steph Curry is her hero. Uh, has been her role model all along. So imagine to be in front of a national television audience on a Saturday night playing before much bigger crowds than they do in the WNBA. Yeah, do you suppose there are some guys out there going, okay, well, that was close. Let's see them do a dunk contest on one another. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> well, that, uh, that, that would be a whole other story. But uh, there's actually talk about next year possibly uh, doing a two-on-two. Uh, having, uh, you know, maybe the two best in the NBA against the two WNBA. So we'll have to stay tuned for that. But I, I think that was more fun than actually watching the actual All-Star game, which had no defense. It was, uh, you know, Matador defense for the All-Star <laughs> game. You know? wave, wave, wave at them as they go by. And, uh, you know, and you can see in football, the old Pro Bowl, before they kind of destroyed that, uh, you know, they wouldn't tackle very hard, if at all. And, uh, yeah, even to put a hand in the face of a fellow NBA player apparently is... Uh, is uh, you know not something you do anymore. But hey, to give uh, to give uh, the hockey fans uh, some equal time today too. A couple of giant games uh, at the Meadowlands at MetLife Stadium uh, in New Jersey over the weekend. The Stadium Series where the NHL plays games outside to kind of recreate the environment that most of the players uh, grew up in. Well, not in front of that many fans, but playing outside on the ice. Uh, they had some pretty cool weather in the upper twenties in the uh, New York metro area over the weekend as well. But. Uh, 150,000 people between uh, Saturday night and Sunday afternoons games there. And, uh, boy, the uh, the Rangers came back and beat the Islanders yesterday afternoon 6-5 in overtime, three goals in about four minutes near the end there. And uh, a lot of fun for New York hockey fans as well, John. Yes, a... Crosstown series on the ice there, in fact, of, in, in front of all of those fans. That had to be uh, uh, quite ex- exciting. We we had something similar here at Wrigley Field a few years ago with the Blackhawks uh, playing. I think they were playing the Detroit Red Wings um, at Wrigley Field. So it's it's really a, a totally different feel when you play outdoors like that in, in front of large crowds than in the standard NHL arenas. Yeah, it can be a little challenge for uh, the uh, the crowd as well. Uh, Minnesota's turn a few years back. They played at uh, Target Field where the Twins play baseball. Nine below for uh, game time temperature that night. And so uh, I was toasty warm watching that one on TV. But, uh, hey, nonetheless, and hey, for uh, auto racing fans, too, the Daytona 500 moved due to rain from yesterday to today. They'll uh, wave that green flag around 4 Eastern this afternoon. Yeah, the weather should be much better uh, today. Uh, and then uh, one other note, uh, sort of related to basketball, uh, has to do with uh, a line of sneakers uh, from our uh, former commander-in-chief. Yeah, I don't know if you're going to be able to you know, uh, get some air like with uh, Mr. Jordan if you're wearing these, but former President Trump launching his own line of sneakers. He announced that on Saturday he was attending Sneaker Con in Philadelphia. Told the crowd, I've wanted to do this for a long time. This will be a, a big success. And uh, maybe he's looking to raise some funds, being fined over $300 million in uh, court late last week. Uh, the price for the shoes, 200 to 400 I believe that includes uh, both, you know, the left and right shoe and the pair. But uh, yeah, not, not cheap, John. All right. Yeah, no, not cheap at all. In fact, um, I'm actually looking at a picture of uh, these uh, shoes. Uh, they're, they're gold. Uh, they look like uh, basketball high tops. They got the T for Trump on the side and uh, a little, uh, you know, uh, stars and stripes on the back. And uh, the one I'm looking at, uh, it's called the Never Surrender High Top Sneakers. And they only go for a mere $399. 
dollars, Glenn. What are you thinking? Have you pushed order now yet? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I think I'll stay with my the conventional stuff. All right. As always, uh, thanks so much. Hey, sure thing, Dan. We start uh, every hour here on Morning Air, always in prayer, always giving thanks to our Lord for all the many blessings. And we pray through the intercession of the Mother of God, our Blessed Mother Mary, and continue to pray for peace in the world, especially in the Middle East and Ukraine, and peace in our nation, peace in our church, and in our families. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the Americas, patroness of the unborn, and patroness of Relevant Radio, pray for us. St. Joseph, patron of the Universal Church, pray for us. St. John Paul II, co-patron of Relevant Radio, Pray for us. And we invoke the Holy Spirit every morning when we pray, Come, Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our power scripture from the Playbook of Life this morning is from Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Our Lord Jesus Christ promised before he ascended into heaven that he would be with us always. Jesus is always present to us now and forever. He has no reason to change because he is God in the flesh. He cannot change. Even though we live in a world that is always changing and eventually will pass away, the word made flesh, Jesus the Lord, will never change. And he is with us always, especially uh, in the sacraments and through the Holy Spirit in the Holy Eucharist. And we always pray with great confidence uh, that powerful prayer from the Chapel of Divine Mercy that Maggie and uh, Drew pray every afternoon, Jesus, I trust in you. We need to take uh, a short pause when we come back. Our spiritual director of the baseball priest, Father Burke Masters, will be with us to continue his Be Formed series. This morning, we're going to talk about the Holy Eucharist, the Sacrament of Charity. Stay with us as this Monday edition of Morning Air continues here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Bringing the light of Christ to start your day. This is Morning Air. And welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales. Thanks so much for tuning in here on Relevant Radio and the new Relevant Radio app on this President's Day. As always, you can send us an email directly if you have any thoughts or story ideas. It's morningair at relevantradio.com. And our toll-free line, if you want to be part of the program, 888-914-9149, sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters. That's 888-914-9149. Now, this morning, we're going to continue the Be Formed series as we continue to learn about the Holy Eucharist, and we try to understand more and more the real presence of our Lord Jesus in the Eucharist. Now, we've spoken about many different aspects of the Holy Eucharist, and this morning, we want to focus on how the Eucharist is the sacrament of charity. Joining us live is our spiritual director, Father Burke Masters, uh, the pastor of St. Isaac Jogues Parish in Hinsdale, Illinois, outside of Chicago, to share about uh, this uh, gift that God has given us out of love, the Holy Eucharist, the Sacrament of Joy. Father Burke is the author of his uh, new latest book, uh, Grand Slam for God, uh, a journey from uh, 
baseball to Catholic priest. He's also the Chicago Cubs Catholic chaplain known as the baseball priest and a longtime morning air contributor. Good morning, Father Burke. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be with you uh, on another Monday. Good morning, John. Always good to be with you as well. Well, Father, um, last week we talked about uh, spring training starting uh, with pitchers and catchers reporting. Uh, uh, most of the uh, squads are uh, uh, in their camps, and actually uh, actual games are beginning uh, later this week, if you can believe it. Uh, the, the Dodgers will be uh, playing uh, the Padres in the first uh, Cactus League opener. I am ready for baseball. Unfortunately, I don't think I'll be able to make uh, I usually go a couple of days for spring training uh, to visit the Cubs, but with my schedule, uh, not not able to make it this year. But ready for uh, a new season to start for sure. Well, we we uh, have talked about how, uh, in many ways, there's that connection between uh, spring training and our Lenten season, our, our spiritual spring training. Yeah, yesterday I was preaching on. Uh, you know, I always make three points on Sunday homilies, uh, you know, looking at what went wrong. So like general managers will review the last season and, and see what went wrong. Why didn't we win? You know, only the Texas Rangers can say <laughs> we did win. And then the second thing is how do we defeat our opponent? And then the third thing is how do we get ready for battle? And that's really what Lent is all about. Also, you know, it's looking back at the last year to say what went wrong, what, where did I struggle? Where did I have, you know, temptation and, and sin? Uh, the second point is, how do I defeat the opponent? Of course, the opponent is the devil, and Jesus is the victor. And so the key is staying close to Jesus. What can I do this Lent to grow closer to the Lord who has won the battle? And then finally, how do I prepare for the battle ahead? You know, it's uh, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, the, these back to the basics where, you know, we, we learn to tame the passions of our body. We learn to, you know, go deeper in prayer and to, and then to go out and serve our brothers and sisters. So there's so many great analogies you can make from the game of baseball and our, our life as, as Catholic Christians. Well, um, one of uh, the tools that we have in this spiritual battle uh, is the very gift of Jesus himself, uh, the Holy Eucharist. And uh, I love uh, Pope Benedict XVI. May he rest in peace. He called the Eucharist the sacrament of charity in his letter, Sacramentum Caritatis. Uh, Can you talk a a little bit about uh, this letter uh, by Pope Benedict? Yeah, so today we'll cover just the you know, first few paragraphs, uh, just from the title, Sacramentum Caritatis, uh, the Sacrament of Charity, the Sacrament of Love, is is telling us the direction the Pope wants to go in. And to show us that, you know, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, love is willing the good of the other person. And the Eucharist is the representation of Jesus's sacrifice on the cross for us. And that's the way he showed us, and one of the many ways he showed us how he was willing the good for us, that he was willing to die for us on the cross. And so when we participate in Mass, when we participate in the Eucharist, we are going back to Calvary, you know, and we are, you know, kneeling at the foot of the cross where Jesus showed us his incredible love for us. And so I'm so excited that we're going through this Eucharistic revival as a church because if 
if we re really understand who it is that we're receiving in the Eucharist and what is going on at Mass, you know, our churches would be filling up. And one of the things I've done here at my parish is I've, I've done a 40-day challenge um, to go to Eucharistic adoration every day for 40 days, even if it's for two minutes. Um, and it's so beautiful. I'll go over, over to our adoration chapel in the middle of the day, and there might be 15 people there where normally there's one person, you know. And I just believe that if we get people in front of Jesus, he's the one that will transform our lives. Uh, and so it's, it's an exciting time. And hopefully it's not just for this Lenten season, but it's something then that will continue on long after Easter. Well, Father Burke, can you imagine Archbishop Fulton Sheen uh, doing a, a holy hour for 50-plus years uh, during uh, uh, his life? Uh, he, that was just amazing. It was like a, a continual Lent for 50-plus years of spending an hour in front of the Blessed Sacrament every single day. Yeah, he, he inspires me. I just did a talk on his life last week uh, as it relates to the Eucharist, and he said, the one thing that I could challenge people to do was something that I knew I was doing myself. You know, as a good leader, you never want to say, do this, and then you don't do it yourself. And he said, I, I could back it up because he did it for 50 years or more. And, uh, you know, that inspired me actually to give this challenge to our people is that, you know, this is something that's available to all of us, that Jesus is there waiting for us, is present to us. And we all have, you know, busy lives. But if we're too busy to pray, as Mother Teresa said, we're too busy. And I found the more I invest in prayer and, and when I invest time in a daily holy hour, it seems like God multiplies my, my time throughout the day and he gives me more peace, more joy to do what I'm called to do. And so the, the devil's good at making us a lot, you know, believing the lie that I don't have time for that. And we, we really start to rely on ourselves which is not a good thing to do when we can rely on the God of the universe. Father Burke, can you talk about how um, the, the, this mystery uh, contained in the Holy Eucharist is actually the self-gift of, of Jesus on the cross? It's, it's, it's much more than just a meal. It is. As we hear in John uh, fifteen thirteen, which is my, probably my favorite scripture verse, whenever I played baseball, and even now with my book, I'll often sign my name and then John fifteen thirteen. there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And Jesus, again, not only taught that, but he, he did it, you know, and he said, this is what love looks like. And, you know, most of us will not have to give our lives literally in that sense, you know, on a cross, but how do I lay down my life daily for my family, my friends, for maybe even complete strangers. Um, Jesus is showing us the way, and that's why we celebrate the Eucharist at every Mass. It's, it's showing us that pattern of how to live, how to love, and how to lay down our life. And so this mystery of the Eucharist, of Jesus' self-gift on the cross, is something that the more we go to Mass, the more we start to understand, this is what love looks like. And it's getting um, outside of ourselves, and looking toward the other and say, how can I love that person that's placed in front of me? Even those people that are hard to love, the Eucharist gives us that, that grace that we need to lay down our lives for, for others. 
And uh, Father Burke, the Holy Eucharist uh, represents the sacrifice of Jesus for every generation. We're not re-sacrificing Jesus every time we go to Mass. It's We're entering this once and for all. It is something that Catholics are accused of, is we are we re-sacrifice Jesus at every Mass. And no, it's we're actually time-traveling at Mass. We're going back. It's the one sacrifice uh, made at Calvary for all time. And so we're going back and we're representing that, that mystery of our faith. And uh, as I said, kneeling at the foot of the cross, gathered around the disciples at the Last Supper. If we truly understood what was going on, I believe our churches would be full every day. I remember I did a... Uh, Curcio in 1997, and there they challenged us to go to daily mass. I was 26 years old, and I started to go to daily mass, and then I started to go to adoration. And the combination of those two things, going to mass every day and then going to weekly adoration for an hour, um, it changed my life. And that's what led to my vocation, I'm sure, as, as a priest. And, uh, and so I just want to encourage and challenge our listeners that you know, if you go to Mass, hopefully we're all going to Mass at least on Sunday. That's that's what, you know, we, we should do minimally. But can we go one more day? Or can we, during these 40 days of Lent, go to adoration, maybe even two, five, ten minutes, 60 minutes a day? It will transform you sitting in front of the Lord uh, in adoration, hearing the scriptures proclaimed, and going back to that Eucharistic sacrifice every day. It's transformative. Father Burke, uh, Pope Benedict XVI also um, described the Holy Eucharist as the food for truth. And we, uh, as human beings, we're th- we thirst for the truth, whether we realize it or not. And uh, I've heard it said that the truth is a person, and we're talking about Jesus himself. Amen. <clears throat> Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the truth is a person. And as, as Pope Benedict says so well in this document that, you know, we hunger for truth. And, you know, when, when you hear the truth, it just echoes in your heart. You just know that is truth. And the more we, the closer we grow to Jesus in prayer, the more we dive into the scriptures and, and learn about our faith and develop our conscience, the more we say, that is of God and that is not and the Eucharist is the truth par excellence. It's, it's truth personified in the person of Jesus. And so the more often we receive the Eucharist, the more that our desire for truth, that hunger that we have in our hearts and souls, the more that is fed, uh, Pope Benedict says. And I, I believe that to be so true. We often, you know, we have that infinite desire and hunger for God. And we often try to fill that void with finite things of this earth. You know, Thomas Aquinas would say, honor, power, pleasure, and wealth. Those are finite resources, and they can never fill the the infinite void in our hearts. And so Jesus, only Jesus can, only God can, and the Eucharist is the best way to do that here on earth. Pope Benedict XVI also spoke uh, about the development of the Eucharistic rite. Uh, the Mass uh, that we have today um, is a little different, uh, p- perhaps, uh, than the, the Mass of the first and second century, but it's still the same Mass. It is. You know, he, he talks about in every age of the Church's history, the Eucharistic celebration as the source and summit of her life and mission, 
shines forth in the liturgical rite and all its richness and variety. And so we know in, in Vatican II, uh, there was a call for some changes in the liturgy. And, um, and he says, we're, we're still unpacking uh, the spirit-led revitalization of aspects of the church. And with that, you know, some abuses took place and maybe, you know, some of us have seen those. Uh, but he calls us to be faithful to what the church asks us to do. And uh, we'll, we'll continue, you know, that Vatican II is now, you know, about 60 years old, and we're still unpacking uh, the fruits of that. One of the things, you know, was, um, you know, having mass in your own local language. And I often think about that, you know, I'm a convert to the faith in 1985. Um, I, I wonder if, had I gone to a school when mass was in Latin, would it have had the same effect? I don't know. Uh, personally, I don't know that. Uh, but I know that hearing it in English, you know, just drew me in. And eventually that's what, you know, going to mass and hearing the word of God proclaimed and receiving the Eucharist, you know, really drew me in and uh, became Catholic in 1985, went to the seminary in uh, 1993. So, uh, so I know there's, uh, you know, some abuses that have happened, but I think little by little, we're starting to uncover the beauty of what, uh, uh, what came out of Vatican II. Well, you, you, you mentioned uh, the importance of Eucharistic adoration earlier, and this is something uh, that uh, uh, the late Holy Father, Pope Benedict XVI, also uh, wrote about uh, in, in, his, in his letter, and uh, just the, the power of Eucharistic adoration, and that's something uh, that his predecessor, Pope John Paul II, also was, was very fervent about uh, in, in trying to get us to spend more time in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And, and, and more recently, Pope Francis himself uh, has spoken a lot about Eucharistic adoration. Yeah, Pope, pope after Pope, have they have encouraged us to go to Eucharistic adoration. I've heard sometimes people say that Adoration takes people away from Mass, and I don't believe that uh, at all. My experience is when people go to adoration, uh, they start to go to Mass more often. They have that desire for the Eucharist continues to grow. That desire for Jesus just grows within them to where usually you'll find people who go to daily Mass go to adoration, and people go to adoration go to daily Mass. Uh, it, it goes both ways. So, um the, the popes cannot emphasize enough the importance of sitting in front of Jesus in that silence because we're, our culture is so full of noise. There's so many voices that are calling for our attention and silence. And I know from personal experience, silence can be frightening because we may be afraid of what God is going to say to us. We may not really want to look inside of ourselves and our own hearts. Um, but the Lord is so loving and so gentle with us. And when we sit in that, in his presence, that sacrament of love, as Pope Benedict calls it here, the sacramentum caritatis, uh, you know, he, you just sense God's mercy, his love for you. And there's no fear. Uh, there's only love. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And uh, the Lord wants us to just be in his presence and experience uh, love beyond, you know, what we can conceive in this world. 
Well, our hope here at Relevant Radio is that all these discussions that we've been having about the Holy Eucharist will bring us closer to our Lord and His true presence uh, in during this Eucharistic revival and the upcoming Eucharistic Congress this summer in Indianapolis, Father. Amen. Yeah, I'm hoping to get over to the, the Congress, uh, maybe not for the whole time, but for at least for a couple of days. I think there's going to be about 80,000 Catholics gathered around uh, um, Jesus and the Eucharist, and it's going to be a, a powerful experience, I'm sure. Father Burke, as always, I really appreciate you you being with us. Uh, always uh, enjoy your teachings and your uh, spiritual uh, direction. You're welcome. God bless you and all those who are listening. Many blessings to you. Father Bergmasters, the baseball priest and longtime Morning Air contributor. We need to take a short break. When we come back on the other side, you're going to hear my conversation with Dr. Dan Burns, Associate Professor of Politics at the University of Dallas for a really a, a Catholic perspective on today's uh, uh, national holiday, uh, President's Day. So stay with us. We are headed down the stretch on this Monday edition of Morning Air here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Wake up, America. It's Morning Air with John Morales, Sarah Tafoya, and Glenn Levitz. Your home for faith, fun, and news in the morning on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. And welcome back to Morning Air on this President's Day. I'm John Morales along with Glenn and Gabby in for Sarah. Thanks so much uh, for being with us on this uh, Monday morning here on Relevant Radio and the new Relevant Radio app. You can email us directly. It's morningair at relevantradio.com. And you can find us on social media on X, formerly Twitter, our handle at Morning Air Show, as well as on Facebook. Now, most Americans call today President's Day, but according to federal law, it's actually George Washington's birthday. Uh, because it's a federal holiday, federal services such as the U.S. Postal Service post offices are closed today for President's Day. Now, there's a part of Washington's legacy that not many are aware of. Uh, however, it's a piece of history that American Catholics in particular should celebrate. I spoke to uh, Dr. Dan Burns, Ph.D., Associate Professor of Politics at the University of Dallas. He's also an expert on Pope Benedict XVI about a Catholic perspective on President's Day. Here's my conversation with Professor Dan Burns. Good morning, Professor Burns. Thanks so much for joining us once again. It is great to be with you. John, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Uh, Professor, can you give us a, a brief historical perspective uh, on the meaning of President's Day? Well, you know, like you started to say, it's it, under federal law, it is still technically called Washington's birthday. A lot of people do call it President's Day. That's um, partly, you know, their reports vary, but it seems like it was partly when they moved it to Monday back about 50 years ago. A lot of people were also celebrating Lincoln's birthday, which was just eight days ago, I believe. And they, uh, now there's going to be a floating Monday holiday in between the two. They sort of merged them and said, we're going to celebrate both Washington and Lincoln. Other people take the opportunity to sort of celebrate presidents in general, although, you know, in our history, some presidents, I'd say, have been more to celebrate than others. So I really like the idea of sticking to Washington and Lincoln, but people can interpret it how they like. Of course, Washington's actual birthday is coming up. So it was originally about the founder, of, you know, the father of our country. Um, but we're going to incorporate at least Lincoln into there, the sort of uh, arguably either the first or second greatest uh, of our presidents in history. And 
Um, well, <clears throat> we can talk more about that, but that's that's basically where it comes from, is to celebrate George Washington. And we can talk about it. I think there's, there's a lot of reasons for Catholics in particular to celebrate George Washington, but also just as Americans. Well, the father of our country, George Washington, was not Catholic, uh, but uh, he definitely had a heart for Catholics. Uh, can you give us a, a little bit of a perspective on, on that uh, reality? Yeah, sure. You know, I really recommend, if anyone wants you know, <laughs> you got a professor on the radio who's going to give you a reading assignment, right? So if anybody wants to do a little President's Day reading, there's this wonderful letter that Washington wrote to Catholics specifically. It's, it's, uh, it was March 15, 1790, uh, so just about a year into his first presidential term, and um, it was really, you know, Washington, as, as you all may know, was a correspondent and acquaintance of the first bishop, Bishop Carroll, first Catholic bishop in this country. His, his brother, Charles Carroll, knew Washington from the Continental Congress. Charles Carroll was the only, the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence. So he knew Catholics. He knew, obviously, the role that there weren't very many Catholics at all in the country uh, at the time. We were a very small minority, really, very uh, one or two percent maybe, but he knew that those that there were had, you know, served as bravely as anybody uh, in the Revolutionary War that he had led. So he was he was well aware of the importance of Catholics already uh, to the to the you know fledgling nation. And he just writes this wonderful little letter because the uh, Catholics who had written to him, including Carroll, uh, had had been you know pouring praise on his administration as a president and said, you know, we we really hope that the state and there were still several that have specific civil disabilities for Catholics, that is, anti-Catholic discriminatory laws still on the books, are going to repeal those laws. And uh, Washington is very careful because, as the head of the federal government, he does not want to tell the state governments what they should be doing with their business, but he makes it very clear what side he's on. He says, I, I, just, I trust that as people become more enlightened and generous, um, they're going to realize that, that you shouldn't be putting, making this kind of discriminatory laws. You know, as long as people act like good citizens, they have every right to be treated like full citizens. And that's clearly what, that was his opinion of Catholics. So that, was a, you know, that wasn't an obvious issue at the time. A lot of, a lot of Protestants you know, were on either side of this question of whether Catholics could be good citizens in what was basically a Protestant country. But it was clear which side Washington was on. And you know, if, if he hadn't set that course early on, it's hard to know what might have happened with the waves of Catholic immigration that we had later. Uh, but I think it's... It's it's a it's an admirable part of our history that he's very much the, the first um, the first sort of representative of is, is the way that American Protestants, when they were a heavily dominant majority, chose to treat and chose to, the way they chose to welcome Catholics. Uh, Professor Burns, what do we know about uh, George Washington's uh, relationship with uh, Bishop John Carroll, the first Roman uh, Catholic bishop in the U.S.? You know, they were they they talked. They were in correspondence. I, I'm I'm blanking on exactly how close they were personally, but I know there was a lot of mutual respect. You know, there's letters back and forth between the two of them. I get, the Carrolls were a very prominent family from from uh, Maryland, but you know, not so far from where the Washingtons were. So they certainly knew each other and worked together. There's actually um, another. If if you want even more reading, uh, there's a great encyclical letter by Pope Leo the Thirteenth, the great founder of the tradition of modern Catholic social teaching. It's called Longinqua. Uh, and it's, it's a letter that he wrote specifically to the American bishops at the time. So this is now uh, almost 100 years after Washington's death, maybe exactly 100 years, um, in the, the very late 19th century, 1890-something. Uh, and he specifically mentions, uh, among the many great things in the history of the Catholic Church, he says it starts with uh, the, I think he says, the illustrious founder of your He has some very nice words for, for George Washington. And he says, starting with that friendship between him and Bishop Carroll, um, the the uh, the great Washington he calls him, uh, and he specifically mentions how Washington always appreciated the need for morality and the need for religion as a support for morality in a free republic. If you're going to have, 
um, you know, if you're not going to be governed directly just by some absolute monarch, if it's going to be the citizens as a whole making the decisions, well, you want you, they better be virtuous. I mean, they better they better be able to make the right kind of decisions. And so he, Washington, understood that very well. He said it in his farewell speech, famously, "We can't we can't run a republic without religion and morality." And uh, Pope Leo specifically, you know, names him, praises him for his friendship with with Bishop Carroll, and praises him for understanding this truth that's really at the heart of. Human society is right up till today. Uh, when we lose that, we're in big trouble. And, and Pope Leo says this is one of the reasons that your church uh, is doing so well, you Catholics in America. You've got, you're protected by the laws, uh, and your country recognizes that you, you contribute something valuable just by your religious morality. Uh, that, that's, a, that's an important contribution to the public square. That goes right back to Washington. Professor Burns, uh, can you share with us a, a few reasons for us as Catholics uh, to celebrate President's Day today? Yeah, well, look, I think it's a great time to just to think more about the fact, uh, Washington in particular. It's his birthday, uh, to think more about him. That's why I recommended reading that note of his. Or really, any, anybody who wants to read any speech by Washington, is, it's not going to be a waste of time. Uh, I think that we should celebrate. You know, it's a good reminder uh, that this has historically been a, a Protestant country and considered that. You know, most people wouldn't quite call it that today, but... Uh, it is a democratic republic, which means that the majority rules, and the majorities are the more majority is still Protestants. So that's you know we, we've never been a Catholic country the way that lots of other great countries, France, Spain, Italy, you know, have this great history of of sort of being proud of their Catholicism. Um, that's not our country as a whole, but we've always I shouldn't say always actually because it's not always, but most of our history uh, we've still been a country that it was you know mostly run by Protestants who respected Catholics. Uh, and Washington is a great example of that. I think if you look through our greatest presidents, certainly Lincoln is another example of that. We could talk a lot about Lincoln. So I think it's a good it's a good day to recall the best of our American political tradition, which has always been one of mutual respect uh, and neighborliness between Catholics and Protestants, uh, even when, as, as the Protestants almost always were, they were in the majority. Um, and I think it's a good, you know, it's a good time to remember what made Washington such a great statesman. Uh, it's not not a bad thing to recall the year before a presidential election, but you know he is he is that gold standard. Um, we're not. I don't think any. It's likely that any of our candidates uh, this coming year, whoever they may be, are going to fully live up to that standard. Um, but it's but it's good to bring it back. You know, a man of great prudence, of great human virtue, uh, of great piety. Uh, you know, he had a personal relationship certainly with God as he understood Him. He was he was not a Catholic. He didn't share the full Catholic understanding of God, but he certainly worshipped his Creator, uh, and that's a. And that's just a long-standing American tradition that we haven't always lived up to, but we should try to encourage our country to live up to. Uh, Professor, um, Holy Fathers, the pontiffs in recent years have spoken about the virtues of America and American liberty and uh, and what this country was founded on. Uh, but more recently, um, Pope Francis has specifically spoken about uh, President uh, Abraham Lincoln in, in relation to uh, President's Day. Yeah, you know, I saw, <clears throat> I think it's great to bring in Lincoln, too, since it is called, you know, in most places, including here, I think it's called President's Day, not just not just Washington. So, you know, going back to Lincoln as another one of these paragons of, um, you know, res- a man of, of enormous respect for the Bible and the biblical tradition of piety towards his maker, uh, towards God, towards the God of the Bible, uh, a man who understood that uh, even if, you know, the mainstream American interpretation of that was not going to be the Catholic interpretation, but nonetheless understood that Catholics could be part of that, that they could be part of this nation and should be part of this nation, a, a proud part of this nation who, because of their own faith, our own faith, for our own reasons, 
we're we're part of something where we revere something and look up to something that our Protestant brothers and sisters also look up to, and so we can all read, you know. Read Lincoln's second inaugural. I mean, read anything by Lincoln. Read the Gettysburg Address. Look at that and see. Again, it's not going to be put in specifically specifically Catholic language, uh, but the piety that's there, the reverence for God, the reverence for our country, those are all sentiments that we as Catholics should fully embrace and endorse and, and that we should be proud to be part of. Professor Burns, uh, obviously uh, this morning, uh, President Biden making news. We may not uh, agree with him. A lot of folks may not agree with him, uh, but he's still our president. He is a, a Catholic president. Can you talk about why here on this President's Day, it's a good reminder that we need to continue to pray uh, for uh, President Biden, to pray for our president? Uh, well, that's absolutely right. You know, we, we pray for the Pope, we, and, we, and for a different reason, but also not as important, but also important reason we also pray for our president. The man occupies an extremely important office in our country. It's important that we Learn to respect, you know, we teach our children to respect that office uh, out of uh, gratitude to our country for all that it does for us, uh, that it's, it's part of how we stayed together. And, you know, I think the, that the awful story from Los Angeles is a good reminder. What, what, uh, what holds us together, really, what protects the church is, to a large extent, the rule of law. Uh, when that breaks down, it's terrible for the church. Uh, and, and rule of law depends on respect for the law. The, the president is the, uh, whatever... We can talk about elections, but generally speaking, uh, the, the president is a constitutionally chosen representative of the American people. We, out of respect for the Constitution and the office he holds, we show respect for him. Even when we disagree with him, we may want to vote him out. You know, that's, that's, that's part of the Constitution, too, is we have the right to do that. But I think praying for him is a great way to show that respect and, and to teach it to our children. Well, Professor Burns, uh, thanks so much uh, for joining us on this President's Day. Really appreciate uh, your perspective. Always a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And that was my conversation with Dr. Dan Burns, Associate Professor of Politics at the University of Dallas. And now it's time for another episode of Glenn Story Corner. Pretty good story about parenting for you today. It's called The Cake by Joseph Walker. Cindy glanced nervously at the clock in the kitchen wall. Five minutes till midnight. They should be home any time now, she thought, as she put the finishing touches on the chocolate cake she was frosting. It was the first time in her 12 years she tried to make a cake from scratch, and to be honest, it wasn't exactly an aesthetic triumph. The cake was, well, lumpy, and the, the frosting was bitter, as if she'd run out of sugar or something, which of course she had. Then there was the way the kitchen looked. Imagine a huge blender filled with all the fixings for chocolate cake, including the requisite bowls, pans, and utensils. Now imagine the blenders turned on, high speed, with the lid off. You get the idea? But Cindy wasn't thinking about the mess. She'd created something, a veritable phoenix of flour and sugar rising out of the kitchen clutter. She was anxious for her parents to return home from their date so she could present their anniversary gift to them. She turned off the kitchen lights and waited excitedly in the darkness. When at last she saw the flash of the car headlights, she positioned herself in the kitchen doorway. By the time she heard the key sliding into the front door, she was this close to exploding. Her parents tried to slip in quietly, but Cindy would have none of that. She flipped on the lights dramatically and trumpeted, ta-da! And she gestured grandly toward the kitchen table where a slightly off-balance, two-layered chocolate cake awaited their inspection. But her mother's eyes never made it all the way to the table. Just look at this mess, she moaned. How many times have I talked to you about cleaning up after yourself? But mom, I was only... I should make you clean this up right now, but I'm too tired to stay up with you to make sure you get it done right, said her mother, so you'll do it first thing in the morning. Honey, Cindy's father interjected gently, take a look at the table. I know, it's a mess, said his wife coldly. The whole kitchen's a disaster. I can't stand to look at it. And she stormed up the stairs and into her room, slamming the door shut behind her. 
For a few moments, Cindy and her father stood silently, neither one knowing what to say. At last, she looked up at him, her eyes moist and red. She never saw the cake, she said. Unfortunately, Cindy's mother isn't the only parent who suffers from situational timbicular glaucoma, the occasional inability to see the forest for the trees. From time to time, we all allow ourselves to be blinded to issues of long-term significance by stuff that seems awfully important right now, but isn't. Muddy shoes, lost lunch money, messy kitchens are troublesome, and they deserve their place among life's frustrations. But what's a little mud, even on new carpet, compared to a child's self-esteem? Is a lost dollar more valuable than a youngster's emerging dignity? And while kitchen sanitation is important, is it worth the sacrifice of tender feelings and relationships? I'm not saying our children don't need to learn responsibility or to occasionally suffer the painful consequences of their own bad choices. Those lessons are vital and need to be carefully taught. But as parents, we must never forget that we're not just teaching lessons, we're teaching children. And that means there are times when we really need to see the mess in the kitchen and times when we only need to see the cake. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Thanks so much, uh, Glenn. That'll do it for this uh, President's Day edition of Morning Air. Uh, for Glenn, Gabby, and the entire uh, team, thanks so much for joining us. God bless America. We'll see you tomorrow. The Patrick Madrid Show is straight ahead.